I'm Glenn Crooks, and this is On Frame. Part one of the Hudson River Derby in 2019 coming up Sunday at Red Bull Arena. The New York Red Bulls will play host to New York City FC in the 13th regular season meeting since City joined the league in 2015. We'll have a guy who consistently talks to the players and coaches on both sides of the river in just a moment. Also today, Aaron Fish embedded with the U.S. women's national team every step of the way to their second straight World Cup. She ran the FIFA Twitter account for the U.S. women in charge of all the content, and she'll offer an insider's look into the number one team in the world. And time now to welcome in a guy who has uh, grasped this uh, Hudson River Derby because he covers both teams for Pro Soccer USA and also MLSsoccer.com. He's Dylan Butler. And uh, first and foremost, how's the baby? She's she's good. She's kicking with both feet, which I like, um, especially with her left. So as as a coach, you you realize the importance of that, Glenn. So if you know any of if you know any U1 teams out there, uh, I'd be more than willing to get her on one. So well, uh, I'm gonna uh, hook you up with Tom Beyer. Soccer starts at home, and uh, you need to get a little mini ball in every room and get this thing moving, man. Get it moving. All right, so this will be the 13th regular season match between the New York Red Bulls and New York City FC. It'll be Sunday, uh, 6.30, uh, airtime 6.15 on WNYE 91.5 FM and the New York City FC Network at Red Bull Arena, where uh, other than one match, uh, New York City hasn't fared particularly well. The uh, opening match of 2017 between these two. New York City uh, got the 2-0 win, and uh, that seemed to also set the tide for a little bit change in the course of this derby. But uh, Red Bull Arena has been difficult for New York City. It has, and, and uh, you know, you'd say generally speaking, just the Red Bull style has been has been a difficult one. Um, you know, NYCFC, a team really from the beginning, whether it was Jason Christ or Patrick Vieira or now at Dome Toronto, they, they want to possess the ball. They want to play from the back. And for the Red Bulls, I mean, that's like they're looking at a piece of cake, right? They're like, this is awesome because we want to press high, you know, and, and, and it kind of fits right into their game plan. We saw a little bit of a change in tactic uh, a year ago at Yankee Stadium where, where some more diagonal balls and, and a more – Direct approach a little bit from NYCFC, but yeah, no, at Red Bull Arena, it's been, uh, collectively, it's been a fortress for the Red Bulls, but certainly in the Hudson River Derby as well, they, they've uh, they've placed their stamp, and they've done it early often as well on, on games. You know, and uh, th- their record, though, at home is 6-3-1. and one. They're in sixth place of the East, a single point behind New York City FC, so that makes this for maybe an, an even more contentious battle since they're so tight in the standings. But those three losses before the, uh, well, it's a little after the midway point for, for the Red Bulls right now, is uh, a bit unusual. I mean, uh, has it been less of a fortress this year for them? It's been, it's been, it's been a challenge uh, for a few reasons. One, uh, I'm not sure. I'd, ha- I'd really have to look through every single lineup but I would be hard-pressed to see if there was a point this year that Chris Harmis has put out a preferred 11 more than three times, say, in the entire season, whether it's international call-ups, whether it's uh, injuries. 
he just has not had a regular 11. Think back, too, to the start of the year. Kamar Lawrence brought along very slowly. He missed probably the first two months. Bradley Wright Phillips misses uh, two months as well, a month away for Aaron Long. That's the spine. That's, that's like the heartbeat of the team, those three guys. So that's been difficult. You, you've had some situations with Kaku and, and suspension and uh, you know some disciplinary things with him, especially early. And, and then, yeah, I mean, teams are just playing differently against them. A lot of teams are, are, are playing direct out of the back, uh, willing to, to get into those aerial challenges in the midfield or up the field, bypassing lines, um, making things a little more difficult for the Red Bulls. So, so their bread and butter is the high press, but when you bypass that, it, it, it kind of takes it away, and, and they've got to find ways to press in other parts of the field. Chris Armistow says at all times, and, he, and he's changed as well, realizing at times that he'll have more of the ball, so he's gone with different formations. He, he's, he's went with three center backs. He's went with two forwards in front, um, which I think kind of makes this also a, a fun chess match because Dome Toronto has often changed, and he said even several times, three, four times in a game, he's changing his shape as well. Uh, so I think, I think all of those factors – uh, are relate to maybe a slower start uh, than the Red Bulls would want, but 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 Chris Armas has said, look, no matter what shape we're in, no matter how we're playing, we've got to be aggressive. And at times this year, at Houston, most recently, they've uh, not been as aggressive as he would like, and and it's burned them. Well, that was a 4-0 loss, so we're with uh, Dylan Butler, Pro Soccer USA, MLSsoccer.com, uh, and also... Uh, Sometimes my partner on the broadcast for WNYE, 91.5 FM. And Dylan, uh, and, and he covers both these teams, so uh, your insight on this is um, is really critical. I, I look at the Red Bulls. They've scored 33 goals, three more than NYCFC. And then you talked about the two-month absence of Bradley Wright Phillips. So how have they, been man- how have they managed to score at that sort of rate uh, without BWP? Well, it has literally been a collective effort. They've had 16 different scores, which is the most in their franchise's history, um, which is remarkable to think, and we're only at the midway point of the season. So um, the biggest guy to shoulder that load has been Brian White, who um, came in a year ago and and not many people knew about him. Another one of these guys who's come up through the system a little bit, he went to to, to Duke, and, and from there he, he played for the PDL Red Bulls team. He made the U20, uh, not the, uh, well, that was the U23s, and he played for the USL. Um, just shy in there. He got an opportunity a year ago um, a few times where, where BWP was rested, and he's been phenomenal. The funny thing about him is Chris Armas says all the time, he's almost a clone of BWP just in terms of the runs that he makes, the way that he's able to read the game, um, the, 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 just the timeliness of getting into the box, getting into the right spaces, um, and just his finishes as well. Everything is kind of in and around 12 yards uh, to the goal. So he, he'll slide in, he'll get those dirty goals, but he's been phenomenal. And uh, Danny Royer has had a very strong start of the season as well. Um, but, it ha- I mean, you look down the line, again, it's, a, it's remarkable to think on, on a roster where you – utilize what maybe 25 players 26 players 16 have found the back of the net so that that's been uh, important for them and and also important 
Bradley Wright Phillips scoring in their last game against Atlanta. He's right. he's had such a time, right, in this derby. He and, and Via for, for, for many years, they were the two faces of this of this showdown and he scored uh, a bevy of goals against NYCFC. So it's important for them now that he's back, he's getting healthy. Now he also got on the score sheet in the last game, which I think is big for him. Yeah, in the third minute of stoppage time in Atlanta to earn a 3-3 road draw for uh, the New York Red Bulls and BWP against New York City FC. How does 12 goals in 12 matches sound? That's the most goals he's scored against any other team uh, in MLS. Dylan Butler with us. And you mentioned Brian White. Uh, Flemington, New Jersey native, played his club ball at PDA, and you're you're right. I mean, he's just a a guy that has uh, risen from uh, what outsiders looking in would consider the dark, and has provided some uh, really important uh, finishes and important forward play uh, at the number nine. And we expect on the New York City side uh, that their striker, which uh, he's only been around the club this year for the first time, but in his 10 appearances, six goals and three assists, so he's been rather productive, Eber. Uh, so we, we figure Eber will be back since he started the U.S. Open Cup game. And I was always looking, I, I really wanted the Eber versus BWP striker battle. Will BWP start on Sunday? What, what's your, what, what do you think? That's a good question. Um, he, uh, they, the, the one training session I went to, he was lively. It was more of a regen day. It was at the start of this week. They they will have training um, Friday afternoon at, at the arena. I'll be out there for that as well. So I'll, I'll get a better uh, idea, I think, from that. But uh, it, it's Chris Armas, if he's done anything, he's been extra cautious on bringing guys back too soon. And, and it's funny, with Kamar Lawrence, uh, who's arguably one of the best, if not the best, um, Left back in, in MLS, it's it's been uh, we would we would pepper him with questions. When is Kamar coming back? How is Kamar coming along? He actually played 90 minutes for Jamaica before he even uh, started for the Red Bulls, and and it, he's been slow and steady bringing guys back. So so to answer your question, um, I think it depends on how he feels this week. It, he 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 had like this really tough groin injury, like a tendonitis, where. Um, it was really difficult for him. He, he's felt pain-free recently for the first time in a very long time. Um, so he, he's a guy uh, I wouldn't be surprised either way, to be honest. Uh, uh, but it will depend on this week of training and kind of seeing how he feels and, and maybe what his role could be. But Brian White, look, again, they've, they've, as we just chronicled, they've lost nothing with having him in. So if you have White in the, in the eleven. He's a guy who's fine in the back of that, even last game as well. So um, they, he's also tinkered with the possibility of having two strikers. Maybe you have both of those guys up front. So uh, we, we shall see. Omir Fernandez for the Red Bulls, uh, a young player that maybe you can enlighten us about. Uh, uh, he's been influential at times. And uh, you just tweeted out something uh, recently that he spent his first New York derby, and uh, that would be... May the 11th, 2015, the Red Bulls winning at Red Bull Arena over New York City FC 2-1. You said he was in uh, among the New York City FC supporters. So what's his story? Well, I'll actually, I'll actually correct you there a little bit. It was the game at Yankee Stadium when Jack Harrison scored that phenomenal goal, right? So, so that was a year later um, in July, right, of, of 2016. I'm just um, reading your tweet. His... I'm just reading your tweet. 
How uh, Red Bull New know, York's I, I, Omir Fernandez spent his first New York derby among New York City FC supporters. Oh, it was his correct. first derby, so it wasn't at the first derby. Okay, I got you. Correct. All right, man. Yes. Well, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, look, he, he's a kid who, who um, like a lot of other guys on Red Bull, has come up through the system. He, he, he was an academy kid. He's from the Bronx. He's 15 minutes from Yankee Stadium. Um at this point, he's 16 years old in 2016, and it's a beautiful July afternoon, not unlike we're going to see on Sunday. And he and his boys are like, let's go do something fun. Uh, his, his buddy was like, look, I got these tickets at 20 bucks each. And Omir's like, all right, let's go. I'll wear my Red Bull stuff because I know because all of his friends at the time were all NYCFC supporters. So he figures you're going to wear your NYCFC gear. I'm going to wear my Red Bulls. And, and his buddy is like, listen, I don't think that's a good idea I think where we're sitting, maybe that's not not the right plan. He realizes, fortunately for him, he realizes the night before that he's sitting in the supporter section. Not only is he sitting in the supporter section, he's in the front row of the supporter section. He said they were great seats right behind the goal. Um, and he said it was kind of a unique situation because obviously everyone around him are, are NYCFC fans. They're going crazy. Uh, he's got to kind of... Uh, Root inside and not out, um, but he also wanted to see Jack Harrison. Jack Harrison, um, you know, a kid who played only one year but was fantastic at Wake Forest, the college that Omir Fernandez went to. So Omir went the year after he spent two years as a Demon Deacon. It was after Jack Harrison, but he watched. Right? I mean, when you yeah. when you're recruited to to a team, you watch how they played the year before. He thought Jack was phenomenal, so he was like, you know what? Cool, I could see the guy that I met on my recruiting visit watch him play, and then as you remember, Jack, you know, this unbelievable sombrero to avoid two defenders, scores with his right foot near post, beats Robles, and he sets up Villa later on, so it was a 2-0 win for NYCFC, so it, it was kind of a mixed bag. It was a great day uh, for the blue side of New York, not so much for Omir Fernandez, who, who got a bit of stick from his friends, um, and also he clearly couldn't cheer as he was sitting in the uh, NYCFC supporter section. Uh, you mentioned earlier Brian White uh, went to Duke. Uh, you uh, uh, on Pro Soccer USA. You've been working on a, a feature: Sean Davis for the Red Bulls, Sebastian Ibiaga for New York City FC, who's been getting plenty of time in the absence of Alexander Collins, who's been with Peru. Uh, what is uh, what is the uh, the highlight of that story that you could share? Yeah, they're just they're. Um... You know, they're two guys who were uh, co-captains, actually, at Duke at a time. Um, and what's going to be cool is if people log on to Pro Soccer USA, we, we have a great photo of, of Sebastian and Sean together um, as co-captains of, of that team. And uh, I spoke uh, with John Kerr, their head coach, of course. Um, he's super excited just to see their development. And, you know, they, they've taken different paths to MLS, right, where Sean Davis, again, um, I keep harping on it, but it's very much their philosophy. He's a homegrown um, and uh, Red Bulls guy, so he came up through their system, uh, spent his time at Duke, and, and, and then went to the USL and was an academy guy and, and made his way up. Sebastian Abiaga, uh, more of a circuitous route to MLS and, and, and to his opportunities. But now here they are, right? Close friends. Uh, they still keep in touch, but uh, they – very much are on different colors. They both wore blue at one point, uh, but Sean <laughs> Davis has, has has turned that to red, and and Sebastian has continued to wear blue. And 
uh, Sean Davis was funny. He said, listen, I want nothing uh, but good things for Sebastian. Uh, I would like us to win 1-0, uh, but it would be a goal that is by no fault uh, of his own. It, it, he had nothing to do with the goal against. So that was uh, very nice of Sean Davis. Yep. Well, we all know it's not the Duke Red Devils. Yes, it's the uh, <laughs> the Duke uh, Blue Devils. Yeah, Chris Armas, a New York guy, manager now for the Red Bulls, and uh, you've got Dome Toron on the New York City FC side. They both entered the league at similar times as head coaches with the departure of Jesse Marsh to Germany, Patrick Vieira to France. Do you see any parallels between the advancement of the teams for instance, recently New York City just had a 12-game unbeaten streak halted by Portland 1-0 last week at Yankee Stadium. But the, the feeling there is that the team is beginning to more understand and be used to Tehran and, and vice versa. How's it going? Uh, do you see any parallels? And, and how has Armas handled it? Yeah, I think it's very interesting, right? Because, as you mentioned, they both came in around the same time. Chris Armas's first game in charge of the Red Bulls was actually – uh, the second league derby a year ago, that July 8th game, uh, where NYCFC won. So his first game, he's a Bronx-born guy, was in the Bronx at Yankee Stadium, that 1-0 win where Maxi Morales scores the winning goal. So his success uh, was rather immediate, right, where, where it was a seamless transition from Jesse Marsh. They played the same system. They played the same style, uh, the same players, really. They didn't change much from when Jesse left uh, for Germany to, to when Armas takes over, and they go on to, for a record-breaking regular season, right? A third Supporters' Shield in six years. No team in the history of MLS has had more regular season points. Uh, and then they go on and, and, and lose to Atlanta after Atlanta defeated NYCFC, ironically, in the playoffs. Uh, and, and their hopes of their first-ever MLS Cup uh, went by the wayside. This, the the his first full season now has been a little bit more of a roller coaster where for the reasons we mentioned before um, through injury and uh, suspension other teams changing tactics it's been a struggle uh, this year and again he's also tried to alter some things but I don't think um, his team has taken on as quickly as uh, as or latched on as, as easily as NYCFC has with that understanding that now Dome Toronto has with his, his players. so um, And that's interesting that you, you say it that way, because after seven weeks, Dome Toronto's job was in jeopardy. But for sure, been, yeah. You know, so, and, and yeah. Has Armas ever been in trouble? Well, I mean, it depends. Are you asking the Red Bull supporters on Twitter? Because <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm asking you as a They are as always uh, yeah. uh, a feisty group, okay. uh, for sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, look, he he's done a great job. Um, you know, I think uh, I think he'd like to, to have some maybe some additional help during this transfer window, maybe bring in some more players, Um but, uh, but again, I mean, you know, he, and he's one, too, and, and you know, as you mentioned, he's a New York guy. He's, uh, he played at Adelphi, an All-American, had a great career uh, at MLS, one of the greatest defensive midfielders of, of his generation. Um, he is not one for excuses. So he's, he wouldn't be the one to tell you about all the injuries and, and the change of tactics. And, um, he's, but he's pretty happy, not happy, I should say, because he's also not satisfied, but um, – 
he's not distressed with where his team is right now. He, I think he figures, um, you know, with the long regular season that it is, he'll now have the second half of the season with what he hopes, his regular 11, uh, a regular run of games now. Um, he doesn't lose anyone internationally, right, until at least September. So um, he, he can get into a good rhythm now with, with, with his guys. And it would appear that uh, his handling of Kaku, that, that situation where, uh, you know, and that harkens back to weeks ago, but uh, the way Chris Armas handled that, it, it seems like Kaku is uh, once again a happy member of the team. Maybe he always was, but there were some social media issues, some things posted that you wondered uh, how much he was on board. So it would appear again that the head coach uh, did, did a, pretty good job managing that whole thing yeah i mean you've got to make difficult decisions right as a head coach um you have for 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 so many years as well and in your time whether it was at rutgers or or with uh with with the pda side but you know he in his situation he's got to kind of say look the team is bigger than an individual person right so in the preseason uh there were there were all these uh there's all this talk and 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 he was out front, Kaku is um, with his dissatisfaction over the Red Bulls not being able to secure uh, his transfer to Club America and League MX. Um, he was not happy about that. Uh, he 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 continued uh, on social media, on Twitter, with these sort of bizarre messages, and and um, you know he's kind of it's 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 it wasn't blatant, but it was certainly enough where. Uh, Chris Armas pulls him aside and says, look, you know, we, we don't need this right now. He sat him out for a game. Um, the Kansas City situation followed where, where he was um, petulant. He was upset over not receiving a ball, then kicks it into the stands, uh, injures a fan in the front row. He gets red carded for that. Um, and since that point, and, 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 being away, then you know, then you look forward a little bit. He's not included in Paraguay's Copa America, so you wonder how he'll react to that. Will he uh, go into a shell? Will he mope and, and not be productive? It was quite the opposite. He used it as a as a stepping point to have his most productive run that he's had. Uh, he Chris Armas has said these last maybe five six weeks he's been the best version of Kaku that he's seen since he's been here. And certainly, you, you look back at last year, right? He was pretty amazing against against the Red Bull, uh, against NYCFC in that first uh, derby of last year, that 4-0 win uh, when I think he had a goal, two assists, three assists. But he's saying now, currently, is his best run of form. He gets sent off against Houston. It was an off-ball off situation where he gets stomped by Minor Figueroa. He responds, pushes him over. And again, Armis does. He he thinks that's more isolated. It's not like a return to form. He just said he's got a. He loves his passion, and he said it's one of the things that makes him unique. He's so passionate about the game, but obviously, uh, as a younger player as well, he's got to channel that emotion and 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 use it for good and not for for getting red cards. And what a what a scene now for him, right? To come into uh, there'll be no more emotional game than than Sunday afternoon for him and, and we'll see what version uh, of Kaku I would anticipate the better version that that ter- terrific playmaker who's also really good 
uh, on 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 counter pressing and working against the ball and uh, and and pressing out. So uh, I I would think he's going to have a big impact on this game. Well, and uh, we look forward to Kaku and uh, the playmaker on the opposite side, Maxi Morales, the MLS yeah. Player of the Month. And then you hope that BWP and Eber are healthy. Uh, we would certainly, as we observe this game, would like all players available uh, on both sides. Uh, what's your prediction there, uh, Mr. Butler? I'll put you on the spot. Or how do you think that if you don't want to give a score, how do you think the game's going to go? I I think well, well I'm we letting you off easy. Be- I'm letting you off easy by giving the option not <laughs> not not giving a score. But go ahead. We certainly know it'll be competitive. Uh, it, there'll be battles. There'll be the 50-50s are huge in the midfield, as it always is against Red Bulls. What NYCFC did to beat Red Bulls a year ago at Yankee Stadium was they, they took that combativeness to them. I think NYCFC's got to do that again. Um, they've 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 got to balance playing out of the back with playing long. I I, I hope, as you just mentioned, I hope uh, we've got the best players. Um, everyone is is feeling good on the day. Uh, that the weather, the, the heat and the humidity that we expect um, maybe doesn't play a factor. But I, I think this, this I'm all, I always love these games. I've been to every single one of them, the Open Cup games as well. I'm so jacked up for this one. Uh, I think it'll be a really, really good game. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised, I, again, maybe this is a cop-out of a score, but I wouldn't uh, be surprised to see like a 2-2, like something where there's goals, there's excitement, there's action. Um, but maybe nothing between the two teams, and, and you look forward to the next one in August at Yankee Stadium. All right, spoken like a man who covers both teams, and we'll have to go out <laughs> and talk to players and coaches from both sides in the future. Dylan, good stuff, man. Thanks, and uh, we'll see you on Sunday. All right, buddy. Airtime for the English radio broadcast of the Derby, 6.15 p.m. Eastern for the pregame show with City Head Coach Dome Tehran. And my partner this week, the former Millwall, Crystal Palace, and Fulham center back, Matty Lawrence. Ahead of the recently completed World Cup in France, FIFA launched a 24-team reporter group for Twitter accounts, uh, and the reporter for the U.S. women's national team, and what a ride for her, played soccer at downtown Brooklyn, Long Island University, the Blackbirds, the former home of Portland Timbers head coach Gio Savadese. She returned recently from France, and it's a pleasure to welcome and chat with Erin Fish. Erin, how are you? I'm great. A little jet lagged, but I'm doing good. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's great to chat with you, and we should tell everyone, look, I'm, I'm the former coach at LIU, and I was at an alumni event, and that's where we met, and it was not too long thereafter that you were uh, heading for France to to provide all this, I mean, if it's again, the, the, on, if you go on Twitter, it's at FIFA WWC underscore USA. We know the event is over, but there's still some stuff. I was just reviewing it. There's some cool stuff on there, and especially some of your retweets about the parade. But this is a cool assignment, and I'm just curious how you and the other 23, 24 countries, 24 Twitter accounts, how did that all work out for you? How, how did it happen? Well, we all have our different ways in, obviously, but my, my story was a little bit unique. Um, I, I went to Syracuse University, and I went to a conference uh, with the National Sports Media Association last June, and I met the president of the National Sports Media Association, Dave Gorin, 
And he, we, we just had a conversation that I had played soccer at LA Brooklyn. And um, a couple months later, he had to find someone to go to Uruguay with the International Sports Press Association Young Reporters Program to uh, cover the U-17 Women's World Cup. And he said, he was like, oh, there was this girl that I talked to that played soccer. I think she would be the perfect person. So he reached out to my professor from Syracuse and connected. she connected the two of us. And I ended up going to Uruguay and covered the U-17 Women's World Cup with the Young Reporters Program. And I met people from FIFA through there. And uh, that was an amazing experience just to do a tournament at the U-17 level. And um, after, a few weeks after that, when I got home from that, um, I was asked by uh, Alex Stone, who is the, he runs all of the social media accounts for FIFA. He reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in doing the Senior Women's World Cup. And I was like, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> so nah, nah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of how it worked out. Yeah. And, um, I was, I found myself on a plane to Zurich a few weeks later for training and everything else. And that's kind of how it all happened. Well, uh, fantastic uh, training. So tell us a little bit about training. So, uh, you're, uh, you're essentially running this Twitter account. If, if I could say it that way, what, what did, what was the, the training like? What, what were they, uh, what were some of the important things they were emphasizing? Yeah, so they they flew us in, and obviously we got to meet all of the other team reporters because we we aren't going to be together the entire time. So it was good to to meet each other and get to know each other a little bit and figure out our roles. So it's not just the Twitter accounts that we're we're running. I mean, obviously Twitter is a, is a good way to connect to people around the world and and really push out our content. But we were also um, running the live blog for FIFA, which was it's a cool new way of um putting up content the way that i like to explain it was leading up to the games we were we were posting stuff um about the the games that were ahead but during the games we were basically analysts and our curators were were like play by play so they were posting what was happening and we were posting why it was happening or our, our insider knowledge to, to what was going on in the game. So it was, it was a cool way of, instead of us talking and saying it like a regular play by play and analyst would do it, we were posting it all online through a live blog on FIFA.com. So that was cool. And then we were also writing stories on FIFA.com as well. So we were very busy. <laughs> no, and if you go to the uh, the, the FIFA.com, and which which I did, and I'm sure millions did, you know, to uh, to get their information, you click on one of the games, and then you'd see a lot of your uh, your tweets and posts and blogs, as well as whoever the opponent was, that, that representative as well. So it was a, somewhat of a coordinated effort, I would think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had many people working behind the scenes. I think obviously, like you said, all 24 of us were the face and the names for, for our countries, but we had so many people working behind the scenes to, to make it all happen. And it was a really cool way. They, they did it for the men's world cup um, in 2018 in Russia, but it was really awesome that they were able to, to spend the money to do it for the women's world cup as well. All right. Erin uh, fish, our guest, she uh, was the, uh, Twitter account. I don't even know what to call you. What was? You, did you have a title? Yeah, you, I was. was I was the USA 
team reporter for FIFA or the content producer, whatever you wanted to call it. But Beautiful. We, would, we were saying team reporter. All right. Well, you weren't fortunate enough to get back like the team did the direct charter flight to get there in time for the parade on Wednesday. But I, I saw that you retweeted a bunch of things that happened. Let's just start with the parade because I went through your own Twitter account, which is at Aaron Nicole fish. And, I, and mm-hmm. just not too long ago. And I just saw the Ashlyn Harris 44 second video, which I'm, it, it seems like she must've shot. She was on the float with Carlos Cordero, the U S soccer president. And she's saying, <laughs> into the camera equal pay right Carlos who was over her shoulder he didn't hear a thing she was saying and of course she panned to him and he was nodding you know but he was on to something else but it was rather hilarious because this equal pay thing is uh, something that uh, seems paramount above even maybe even winning this event the the fact that uh, this social movement the the statement that the team has made uh, and now have a larger voice because they did win yeah you know it's funny because when we were there, the entire time we were there, the focus was on winning. And and that's what I think that people, I guess, like the media makes it all about equal pay and everything else. And but these these women are were so determined to they had one job to do when they were there and they knew that. And that's that was their entire focus. They worked so hard the entire time and. And Carlos was there the entire time. He was there to support them the entire time. And so I think they have a really close relationship with him. I don't think it's ever. So that's why it did make me laugh, Ashlyn's post, because I don't think there is as much hatred as people see um, from the outside. I think there really is love between them. And um, (laughs) so it did make me laugh. But uh, well, there have been some uh, yeah. warm embraces at the parade, and no, yeah, and you get the sense. And he mispronounced Megan Rapino's name at the ceremony, but Rapino, uh, to her credit, d- it didn't phase her at all. No, and no, she no, went no. on to say yeah. that the, uh, that uh, she feels that Carlos is on their side, that we're going to yes. get this done. Although they she are, did say something, just... uh, she did say something about putting his feet to the fire. But you know, that's Rapino, I guess. Yeah, I think, and that's all of them. I think they're just they're so positive, and they're 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 definitely like ready to move forward with all of this i think they're ready to put it all behind and i think winning winning the world cup was a statement in itself you know so you were essentially embedded uh with the u.s women's national team in france so you talked about the the focus and the clarity they had i mean there were things uh including uh some interaction on twitter between the president and ali krieger and uh and also Rapino, and you know, again, for the outside looking in, you thought, "Wow, this this could be a distraction." Why is Allie Krieger saying anything? She should be focused on her football. But you didn't sense that at all. No, I really didn't. I think it's funny because from I think from the outsider's point of view, that's what everybody else saw. But they they talk about being in their own bubble, and they really were like. It was even hard for us, like as the FIFA reporters, to get inside of their bubble. Like, and we were with them every single day. They have such a team unity that they—that's all that they're focused on. And even, I mean, Megan handled herself so well. I thought the the day after um, the video came out and. Uh, I mean, she was put up for the press conference the next day. Right. And 
that her first comment was, I stand by my statement. This is what I have to say. And, and then she ended it. And then she wanted to talk about soccer. That was it. So I think, I think that just goes to show how professional these women are. So Aaron, you're uh... I'm curious. So you get there and you see the team at the beginning and then you see them at the end. Could you see uh, the uh, connectivity develop along the way? I mean, did you did you notice at all? And I'm just wondering, was it a, a closer knit team, you know, by the semifinal and final than it was in the opening game of the group? Um, I think they were the same throughout. They when I first met them all, um, it was at the, we did like green screen shoots at the beginning and they were, they were very fun. They're very loose group. Um, but the funny thing was that I liked to, to say to people because they would come in on game day. They don't, they do not smile. Like (laughs) they are straight face, like game on game ready. Every time they come in, they're ready to play. Um, but that changes like when they show up for practice the day before they're 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 the bubbly selves they're fun they're but they know like game day they're ready to play so I think um I don't know it's just they're different on different days and that that's just how they're professional it's how they're wired so um but no I think they're they pretty much stayed the same throughout they were consistent and they got the job done Tell us who, uh, along the way, uh, as you observed, who, uh, when we only see them on camera or where we don't really know them, who uh, is it that maybe was a a more uh, electric personality or or someone who's outgoing, kind of funny, maybe practical jokes, maybe that sort of thing, a player or two that we might not even know that's in their personality? Um. Well, Emily Sonnet is definitely the team jokester. She is a character, and she definitely gets the team going. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know if people notice that from the outside, but, like, she is dancing in the middle of the circle on game days. She's always cracking jokes at practice. Um, she makes the team laugh. Uh, Crystal Dunn is great, too. She's, she's always dancing, lighting up the team. Um, trying to think who else they're all great they all have their own little personalities so they're they're a good group do you remember a, a moment or two just where it was particularly hilarious or or something happened I, I not sure how they all operate together but you were together I mean that's over a month hanging out so <laughs> anything that stands out uh, I'm trying to think um, and I know you've been through a lot <laughs> and, yeah, and have I'm taken a lot of pictures and a lot of video and yeah, you've, you've had a, you've had a long haul, but, uh, yeah, if anything, if you remember anything and you um, feel comfortable I'm, I'm sharing, go of, ahead. Yeah. I'm trying to think of any specific moments. I know like personally my favorite moment, which everybody did see on the internet, but was when Jess, it, Jess McDonald's son got there, um, because she was so excited. We had been talking to her throughout about her son, and we did a whole separate story for FIFA of her on the beach and we when we were in La Havre, and we, we talked to her about her son um, and her journey and her life 
story. And um, it was an emotional journey, obviously, for her to get to this point. She's one of the older girls on the team, but she and she's been through so much. And just what she has a seven year old son. So for and she told us that he was coming out in the next few days. And he said that he was going to he told her that he wanted to dress up like a superhero. Um, and when he showed up and they got to hug and everything else, I was, oh, it was so emotional for everybody. But then I got to meet him later and I was talking to him and I was like, are you going to wear, I was like, are you going to wear your USA stuff? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, well, are you going to wear a superhero costume? That's what your mom told me. And he's like, yeah, maybe, <laughs> but I don't know. He was just like so cute. And he, he got to do everything with Jess after the fact, like he got to go to the parade. He was celebrate. He was pouring confetti on her after the game. And then he got to go to the ESPYs with her as her date. I was like, wow, this kid, this kid is living the life. So I, that was really cool to see. I mean, Jess is like, he's seven years old. Who knows if he'll remember this, but I was like, I think that that's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. He got to see his mom do, yeah, you know, I think just old enough. So Aaron fish, yeah. our guest uh, more on Jess McDonald though. I don't, you know, it's, uh, people probably uh, many don't know her complete story uh, she's 31 years old she only played against uh, uh, Chile in, in the event and and that's kind of the way it looked that was her role and that's the way it was going to be set up uh, coming in but yeah I she had uh, Jeremiah her son and uh, there were points in there where she almost uh, you know stopped it ended the career because of the difficulty of being a mom and trying to have a professional career. So that's a big part of the story, right? Yes. And she also, um, when she was 23, I believe, or 24, she had, um, she tore her patella tendon and had to come back from that surgery. And it's, that was, that's a horrible, horrible surgery to come back from. It's over a year long. And um, when she was rehabbing from that, that's when she got pregnant for Jeremiah. And she obviously at that point, you're, you're, you start thinking, do I even come back from this? Um, but she did and she's crushing it. So, well, one of the things I read that uh, I thought was noteworthy and again, you know, this this team uh, may be noted more for the social movement rather than the victory. That's the way I'm looking at it. Obviously, back to back World Cup championships, four out of the eight. I mean, it's really a, it's really a remarkable story. But part of her uh, using her platform is for the uh, club teams, and I'm sure she was <laughs> referring specifically to NWSL and the Federation, which is U.S. soccer, to uh, consider how they might provide for daycare. Because all this time uh, where she's been trying to play as a professional on a club level in the States, she's had to bring her son oftentimes to the training field. I, I remember reading a story where he was uh, acting up and she had to actually leave an exercise to go over, you know, to try to <laughs> quiet him down. But uh, this, you know, it's, that's part of her story. It's, it's part of the story of this team, isn't it? Yeah. And I think they're, they're all bigger than soccer. And that's the message that they've, they've had since the beginning. And that's why this team is so important. And I, I there were multiple times um, throughout the month that I was there that I just had to sit back and think, like you said, I, I, I'm a part of history right now. You know, like this is, this is more than just a world cup. 
Um, and, and it's not just in the U S like this is for the, for all of women's football, all of the world. So they're, they're a very important group of group of women. And I'm lucky that I got to spend some time with them. Do you, do you see that uh, the other countries or, or maybe just the, the general public in, in France, is there uh, an appreciation for that platform that they have and, and, and what uh, they've meant uh, to the women's game and to just women in society and working women in general? Yes, absolutely. I think every every team around the world realizes what this U.S. team has done for uh, the game and not just this team like the, the 99ers were there most most of them there were a lot of them uh, Julie Foudy Brandi Chastain Mia Hamm was there Christine Lilly uh, Carla Overbeck and when they when they were there like people were swarming them just coming up to them and talking to them and I think that that just goes to show that what they did 20 years ago um, really paved the way for the game um, now. I mean, it, women's football was not as big as it is now, obviously. And this this World Cup was the biggest it's ever been. And um, part of that is because of that 99 team and what they did. So I think that the platform that the U.S. has for this game, it just it's just huge. And the rest of the world definitely does. Uh, they definitely do realize that. And it's funny because even some of the smaller teams, I remember the first match against Thailand when they, I was out in the hallway with Alex Morgan and she was going to do, record an Instagram video for me. And <laughs> all of the Thailand players were walking by and they were like looking at her like, Oh my God, it's Alex Morgan. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. like, that's just funny. Cause it's, you're about to play her tomorrow. And she's you know and right. you're like you're gonna play against her and you're <laughs> fangirling over her <laughs> yeah. and uh and then alex uh, had a pretty good game with five goals oh, and three yeah, assists not yeah yeah not bad not too bad <laughs> uh aaron fish uh the content producer for fifa representing the u.s women's national team at fifa wwc underscore usa that's where uh, she tweeted and blogged and all kinds of things. You can go back and look in her current account at Aaron Nicole Fish. Aaron, thanks for uh, sharing the stories. Appreciate it. Good luck with uh, your next step. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. One final note on the program. Congratulations to the New York City FC Academy U19 boys defeating FC Dallas 2-1 to win the 2019 U.S. Soccer Development Academy Championship, a national title. New York City becomes the first academy team to win back-to-back U19 titles. And this is the age group. Uh, it's significant that to fully come through this club's academy system when they were U14s, produced three homegrown players thus far, James Sands, Joe Scally, and Justin Hack. Well, that'll do it for this week's On Frame. I'm Glenn Crooks.